Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. So my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. Welcome to the Research Seminar. I'm, uh, uh, we here at WAP are committed to closing gender gaps in the area of areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. We have this very ambitious uh, mission and and uh, part of that is this seminar, which is an opportunity for us to bring uh, scientific research, social scientific research, into the conversation about what um, differences can be made in the world. Um, now, while we are in a small seminar room here, I want to please keep in mind that we have a broader community tuning in. Um, are, we, are we recording today? Okay, great. So we've had more than 18,000 um, downloads um, from the WAP podcast, and so uh, we ask that as you, um, well, please turn off all cell phones, but also as you ask questions or engage, please keep in mind that it's not just the people in the room, but also a broader community of people trying to follow the conversation. So we ask that questions are indeed questions and that they're that they directed um, in a sensible way toward what the <laughs> speaker's talking about. Um, and. Um, so all those are those are kind of our general ground rules. I am um, particularly thrilled to introduce today's speaker. She is um, uh, someone who uh, has been influencing my thinking since I was a, a graduate student. Um, she, uh, this is uh, Lori Rudman, is a professor of psychology at Rutgers University. Uh, her research centers on um, uh, uh, bias stereotyping, prejudice, and employment situations, particularly related to gender and race. Um, she was someone who really brought um, feminist notions of backlash into psychology and um, organizational behavior. And um, this work has just been extremely important, influenced my work on looking at back backlash against um, women who self-advocate in negotiation. But this has really been picked up in many realms, and it's uh, very important seminal work. So I'm not going to keep talking, and I could go on and on and on about the many ways in which um, Lori's influenced my thinking and others. Um, she's also, she has been recognized by the field, field with numerous awards, including the National Research uh, Service Award, the Gordon Alport um, Intergroup Relations Award, which she's won twice, um, the Carolyn Sharif Award, which is a Lifetime Achievement Award um, from the American Psychological Association. She's an honorary fellow of the American Psychological Association, the Association of Psychological Science, and the Society of Experimental Social Psychology. And the research that she's going to talk about today, uh, which is about barriers to female leadership and whether race matters, is um, funded by the National Science Foundation. So please join me in welcoming Professor um, Thank you, Hannah, for that really warm reception. I am more than delighted to be here with you today. Um, I will hopefully get to talk about does race matter, but I also want to try to fit the backlash uh, into what happened in the 2016 election, right? So we're going to try to cover a lot today. Backlash theory. Despite society having made great strides toward gender equality, even in my lifetime, my career, my life, it would not be possible without the second wave of the women's movement. I'm sure many of you agree, right? So even though there's been a sea change in the way we view professional women, gender stereotype violation continues to be taboo, and that's because we have descriptive stereotypes that describe how men and women are, and then we have these gender rules 
that prescribe how we should be and also proscribe how we should not be. Okay, and consequently, women who display just behaviors or traits con inconsistent with feminine norms, and particularly when they break those rules, are at risk for backlash, social and economic penalties for behaving out of gender bounds. Why? From the social cognitive perspective, gender creates expectations about our traits, our talents, our behaviors, our roles, even what we value, how we should live our lives. Should we prioritize work? Should we prioritize family? This is just one way in which gender expectations can be problematic for women. When disconfirming information threatens their beliefs, perceivers may respond with backlash. So this fellow is looking forward to limiting this woman's growth. So that's part of how we get the glass ceiling. It exists because women face a catch-22. That's a situation where you're damned if you do something and damned if you don't. You think of it as a double bind or a dilemma. And women's dilemma is that in order to be viewed as fit for leadership, we have to overcome negative stereotypes about our competence. People will think that we are not qualified to lead simply because men have always been leaders, right? In our culture, in our society, for millennia, men have had greater access to power and resources than men, including leadership roles. So women right away are seen as somehow deviant if they want to be a leader, right? So the way in which we can get over that hurdle, that first hurdle, is to show agency, ambition, assertiveness, competitiveness, whatever it takes to fulfill that leadership schema. And women can do that because asserting your competence, self-promotion, is highly effective at persuading others that you can handle the job. But when women do it, they risk backlash, these penalties. So that means that women start out with two counts against them and have two hurdles they have to jump over when they compete for leadership roles. And backlash robs women of the efficacy of using agency to get over that first hurdle, right? Everybody can be individuated when they just confirm stereotypes, right? But then it's problematic when women do it because then they risk the second hurdle, which is backlash. Everybody with me? All right. So why do I study this complicated thing? I got really interested when, as a grad student, I saw how Hillary Clinton was vilified for taking an active role in her husband's administration. Those of you old enough to remember when he ran for office, he ran on the slogan of, you will get two for one. He was so proud of his wife and her accomplishments that he was selling them as a twofer package to the you, that's never had happened before, right? And so I was very excited about that. And then she refused to be a subordinate first lady who was only concerned about what flowers were going to be shown off in the West Wing and what tea parties, etc. right? She was put in charge of universal health care for the country. And that, oh my God, Armageddon, right? Targeted for what David Remnick has called political pornography, whereby powerful women receive their comeuppance. There are a couple of spy magazine covers. Now keep in mind she was the first lady of the United States, generally a revered role. But because she was not a subordinate first lady, 
This is the kind of nonsense that was hurled at her. It's as if being feminine and having power is so at odds, you can't be a normal woman. You have to be some kind of sexual deviant, i.e. a dominatrix, or a she-man, okay? So I'm watching this with, you know, eyes like saucer cups, right? Ah, what's going on? I thought this was going to go so well. At the same time, my male advisors were telling me that one reason why it was tough for women in academia to get hired and to be promoted is because they tended not to be self-promoting. And I saw that. I went to conferences, and I saw how it was much more comfortable for men to go up to the big muckety-mucks and glad hand and introduce themselves and say something ingratiating, but then, oh, by the way, have you heard about my theory, <laughs> right? And the women more or less on the sidelines, not, not being as self-promoted. But of course, I suspected that these kinds of displays would backfire for women, but it was just a hunch. I needed to actually do some research. So I started actually doing this work as my PhD thesis back in the 1990s, mid-1990s, and it was so interesting that I have not given up on it yet. A lot of my work involves a hiring paradigm where I'm exposing participants to agentic or communal male or female job applicants. Typically the job is for a managerial position. And then participants rate them on their competence, likability, and hireability. Agentic applicants are self-promoting, confident, ambitious, and competitive, the kinds of qualities needed for leadership. Communal applicants are relatively modest and other oriented. Turns out people like them. They like them more than agentic applicants, but they're not rated as competent enough to be hired as managers. Male and female targets <coughs> use the identical scripts, only their gender differs. So for example, in response to the question, what is your management style, agentics say, I think I'm extremely good at sizing people up quickly and then delegating responsibility accordingly. I also plan to hire the very best talent that's available and to make sure that they have the resources to do their job the best that they can. I have to say, I expect a lot of the people who work for me, but I'm upfront about that expectation. Communal applicants say, well, my preference is to get people together, to talk through whatever issues are on the table, and to come to some consensus about the decisions that have to be made. Sometimes people have to be encouraged to speak up and I'll do my best to give them that opportunity. I like to have plenty of input from the people who work with me. They have a more participatory leadership style than agentics do. Agentics have no problem with letting people go when they aren't doing their part. Well, I don't go firing people left and right. If someone isn't performing well, I'll talk to them about their performance, tell them they need to improve, and that their job's on the line. Then if I don't see improvement, it's pretty clear they aren't trying and I need to let them go. Communal will say, I see the firing process as a last resort. When people aren't performing well, it may be because they aren't challenged enough or their skills could be better used somewhere else. I like to talk with the employee to find out what's bothering them or holding them back, maybe try them in a different role. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but I like to give people a chance. And then last but not least, there's 12 of these, okay? So I'm not gonna give you all of them, but this is the last question. What salary do you expect? 
Agentics, my experience and skills put me at the top of the range for this position, so I would expect no less than that, along with a complete benefits package, of course. And Communal said, well, if I should be lucky enough to get the position, I'm sure you'd offer me a fair wage, you know, whatever the going rate is for someone with my skills and experience. Not a recommended answer, right, for anybody. <laughs> in general, identics are more confident, assertive, and direct qualities associated with leadership than communals who are more focused on helping others succeed. So I'm going to show you a mini meta-analysis of eight of my backlash studies, and the way that I scored it is in Cohen's D-score, the effect sizes. So I'm taking the male ratings and I'm subtracting the female ratings and then dividing by the pooled standard deviation scored so that a high score means gender bias. And what you see on the communal side is no difference in likability, but just having a Y chromosome can give guys an edge on the competence dimension and consequently that's why they tend to be hired more than communal women, okay? But on the agentic side, there's a little bit of an edge for agentic women on competence, but then where she takes the hit is unlikability, and it's because agentic women aren't liked as much as agentic men that they tend to experience hiring discrimination, okay? So the catch 22 that's what we have here. Women are in a double bind. If they fail to act like men, they're viewed as incompetent, but if they act like men, they're not liked and not hired for leadership roles. As Carly Fiorina puts it in her memoir, I am either a bimbo or a bitch. It's a pretty harsh dilemma, right? So Diane Sawyer featured my work in a segment called Women Endure Surprising Bias in the Workplace. I'm gonna show you the clip because it describes the gender double standard for agency really well, and also presents examples of my stimulus materials. In the workplace, the day after the first woman became CEO of a big auto company, <coughs> the hard fact is that women run only 4% of companies in the Fortune 500, and a new study shows almost twice as many women as men say they've been turned down for a job because of their sex. So is there a way to capture what's happening on tape? Looking at two people in a job interview, the only difference, their gender? Well, here's ABC Cecilia Vega. He's the boss, she's bossy. The negative way women are perceived at the office in a new ad for Pantene that's gone viral. It's hit a nerve. So we set out to find the truth. Are women who act exactly the same as men seen differently? Listen to this woman. How do you feel about her as a job candidate? I know the Windows operating systems like the back of my hand, no problem. Now, listen to him. I know the Windows operating systems like the back of my hand, no problem. The candidates in these videos are actors in a Yale University hiring experiment. The resumes, identical. The interviews, identical. I'm extremely good at sizing people quickly and I'm delegating responsibility accordingly. The only difference is gender. But when it comes to who got the job? I thought the male applicant had better soft skills. Say that a woman was arrogant and overselling. In hundreds of evaluations, the female job seekers come off as more aggressive, are rated less likable, and they're less likely to be hired. Isn't that a catch-22? You're supposed to be strong to get that job, mm -hmm. and you're saying if you're too strong, you won't get it. You need to behave in this dominant way to advance as a woman in the workplace. 
but you're seen negatively because that's not how we expect women to behave. And if you think this is just male bias, it's not. Both men and women doing the hiring made the same call. I think there's a level of arrogance that becomes that might be okay to be a manager, but then there's a step above, and I thought she was slightly above that. So let's talk. And when we revealed our study results... I was surprised by my uh, reaction. What does that say about us? We have a long way to go. A science experiment with real-life lessons about who gets the job, who gets passed over, and why. Cecilia Vega, ABC News, New Haven, Connecticut. So note that the people in the video, she's not a dragon lady, she's not a ball buster, right? It's just that people t translate a female agency very readily into what I call a dominance penalty, where the woman, can, agentic woman, can actually be seen as more dominant, arrogant, self-centered, etc., hostile, than um, an identically behaving man, right? So in the audience, as you saw, reacted the same way my research participants do. He's great, she's over the top, arrogant. The question is why finding out what's not to like about strong, self-confident women is key to solving the backlash puzzle. It may also shed light on a shocking night in all of our recent lives, right? It's, this is not me, but she's certainly wearing the expression that I had on my face, right? Now I'm going to talk a little bit about backlash in the 2016 election. I'm going to remind us of double standards in that particular uh, campaign, but also a reminder of why Hillary Clinton should have won. Imagine a woman who showed up unprepared to a presidential debate sniffling like a coke addict and interrupting her opponent 70 times. Let's further imagine that she's had five kids by three men, was a repeated adulterer, had multiple bankruptcies, paid zero federal taxes, and rooted for the housing crisis in which many thousands of families lost their homes. Wait, there's more. She's never held any elected office in her life, and evangelical Christians love her just as she is. Huh? Did you see this? It kind of went viral when it came out, but it was way before the election. It was just kind of a confirmation of why we all sort of thought there's no way she can lose, right? You, you put them together side by side like that, and you just go, there's no way that the country so how, did it, how on earth did this happen, right? She was far more qualified than he was, and sure, sure, he was an outsider in an outsider year election, but oh my God, so bigoted, just a childish tyrant, mired in fraud and self-inflicted scandals. So had Americans lost their minds? One comedian had an answer after the returns had come in that night. What I've learned so far tonight, America is way more sexist than it is racist, and it's pretty effing racist. <laughs> so, I mean, I saw that tweet and I thought, yeah, that's pretty much how I feel too, Pat and Oswald, thanks for that. Um, and then yes, there were multiple factors that created that debacle, but sexism certainly played its part. Accomplished women risk backlash because they threaten the legitimacy of patriarchy. How exactly do they do that? The more women are seen performing at the highest <coughs> levels, the less tenable it becomes for our society to grant men more access to power and resources. The legitimacy of the gender system starts to crumble what, the more we see female vanguards doing jobs that men have traditionally done just as well or better than men have done them. 
So backlash actually functions to support patriarchy because when we undermine or reject accomplished women, what that does is it renders them invisible. What's happened to Hillary since the election? She's hiding in the woods according to what I hear, right? I mean, she's like nowhere. She's been rendered invisible and powerless to change the gender system and there's a couple of ways that uh, vanguards can change the system. One is by subverting gender stereotypes that women cannot lead, that they're too uh, weak or soft, whatever, to lead. And that's true, obviously, of any stereotype you want to get rid of. I don't know how many of you are aware of the fact that there was a time when African Americans were stereotyped as too weak to compete physically, so they were not allowed to be in professional sports, much less the Olympics, right? What's happened to that stereotype? It's like done a 180 now, right? And that's thanks to all these talented, brave vanguards who just showed the world that African Americans are incredible athletes, thank you very much, right? So we always need vanguards to break down these rules or norms. The second way is by serving as inspirational role models for future vanguards, right? All of a sudden, you might have a whole generation of women, or as Obama has said, the proudest part of his legacy is there's a whole bunch of kids in the United States who have only grown up under a black president. So they don't know any other way, right? And so how much might that inspire future African-American presidential contenders, right? No way of knowing, but it's bound to have a positive effect. In contrast, when you watch a woman like Hillary Clinton go through what she went through, then people are likely to suffer from <coughs> vicarious backlash. Christopher Hunt is an Australian social psychologist, and he found that women in that country were less likely to aspire to leadership after they had gone through uh, vicariously watching what Julia Gillard had gone through. She was their first female prime minister. So he did a before-after kind of thing. She didn't last very long. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but there's actually a very powerful YouTube video that you can just type in Julia Gillard. It'll pop right up. <coughs> She's accusing her colleagues on the parliament floor of rank misogyny. And pretty much that was the consensus, is that she didn't last because of rank overt misogyny, right? So. Australian women were watching that, young women were watching that going, oh, I don't want to have to live through that myself. Similarly, Corinne Mastrakusen, who's my former grad student, you got to see her in that video. We find that when, when women are just afraid of backlash, when it's like been internalized and it's in their psyche, then it's, it hinders their ability to put their best foot forward during a job interview, even though experimenters are saying it's absolutely necessary that you put your best foot forward here. And then if they fear backlash, they can't. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is their risk prevention antenna goes up. And then that means their locomotion, what Higgins calls self-regulatory mode of locomotion, or I call it promotion, goes down. But also their sense of entitlement to get the job or get the raise or whatever it is, is decreased to the extent that they're afraid that other people will react negatively to their assertiveness, right? So what is the fallout for women likely to be after watching what happened to Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election cycle? 
So I like to refer to her as the poster woman for backlash. I'm fondly remembering 2008 when she first ran for president. How many of you remember the Hillary Nutcracker? Yeah. <laughs> At that time, we were pretty horrified, weren't we? That's nothing. It's nothing compared to what she went through in 2016, right? So the gloves were off, and I can't imagine that uh, young women could feel anything but horrified by watching the way she was vilified. When I would hear the chant, lock her up, lock her up, see the slogan, Hillary for prison, I just always thought, oh, they must mean Hillary for gender prison, because she'd stepped so far out of gender bounds <coughs> that it was time to like literally throw her in prison. And you notice now that they're not calling for her to be convicted, whether it was trumped up charges on Benghazi or the email server, whatever it was that would get them going with this chant in the rallies. The fact that she was defeated was enough. So, what motivates this level of animosity? Backlash like anything negative, prejudices of all kinds, not engaged in arbitrarily, it has to be justified. The shock to me was that women are just as likely to show backlash as men. That's pointed out in the video, but it's actually over and over again we find that to be true. And since it's been decades now that I've been studying it, I've been able to try just about every sexism measure that's out there, and as well as measures of stereotyping, and I n have never been able to moderate it. Hmm, what's going on with that? Who then is most likely to reject female leaders? Well, luckily, John Jost and Mazarin Banaji uh, came up with system justification theory, arguing that even women can be co-opted into defending patriarchy as, quote, fair and just, unquote, in order to avoid essentially a lifetime of bitterness and despair. It's very depressing to think that the system is set up against you. As an individual, you might think, how will I ever achieve my own dreams if I'm constantly thinking this way, right? So you don't want to be bitter, you don't want to be despairing, you don't want to be depressed. So you come up with ways, even unconsciously, to justify that whatever caste system we are born into, that allows us to be healthier psychologically, but it also means that social injustices are more likely to continue. So in 2015, we found that people, men and women alike, who justified the gender system were also more likely to engage in backlash against agentic female leaders. So the items on the gender system justification scale for women, the US is the best country in the world to live in. In fact, it doesn't even break the top 20, and that's with the most generous of gender empowerment, <laughs> yeah, right? The division of labor and families generally operates as it should. The guy should be making the money, the woman should be home, if she has a career, then she should take on that second shift and not be unhappy about it, right? Society is set up so that men and women usually get what they deserve, and everyone, male or female, has a fair shot at wealth and happiness. So it's like an eight-item scale. And I'm going to be referring to people who score high on that as defenders of patriarchy. What we found in 2012 was whether we measured defending patriarchy or manipulated a system threat, 
we found that defending patriarchy moderated backlash for women and men alike, right? The higher you scored on that measure, the more likely you were to engage in backlash, or if you were in the system threat condition, your backlash scores were higher than if you were in the control condition. So this was so exciting that- Can I ask you how you manipulate the system threat? Oh, we used um, what Aaron Kay used in 2009, which is economic system threat, which is very believable because we had the global crash, right? So finally we had a clue regarding what justifies backlash as well as an individual difference moderator in hand, but it left a vital question, what is it about patriarchy that people deem worthy of defense? It was fabulous that we were making some headway, but very unsatisfactory at the same time because it left us with this burning question. Plausible suspects include social dominance orientation. How many are familiar with SDO? Couple I know you, are Rachel. Um, it's probably one, uh, one item off the scale is probably a good thing that certain groups are at the top and other groups are at the bottom. So it's an attitudinal measure and people who like social hierarchies in general ought to like patriarchy specifically, right? That would be attitude consistency. And we looked at gender essentialism, sample item is I think that differences between men and women in behavior are largely determined by the biological differences between genders. So people who point to biology as the cause of sex differences should also defend patriarchy as natural. But inspired by the 2016 election, we also included social Darwinism that's the belief that humans, like plants and animals, are governed by natural laws dictating survival of the fittest. It justifies social hierarchies by viewing life as a fierce competition in which ruthlessness is necessary for success, AKA jungle law. Well, in the 2016 election, Trump and his supporters displayed that worldview. Trump openly admired dictators and smeared his opponents as weak and pathetic while offering brutality as the best solution to any problem. Undocumented immigrants, deport them all and build a wall. Jihadist terrorism, torture and murder them, throw in their families to boot. Dissent, punch protesters in the mouth and remove them on a stretcher. The complexity of the growing diversity of American <coughs> citizens, oh, forget about it, just screw political correctness. Irrationality with muscle has been called the universal appeal of tyrants. He was crazy making, but that's what appealed to his supporters, that and his forcefulness. As a man told a reporter at a Trump rally when asked if he supported Trump, hell yeah, he's no bullshit, all balls. Fuck you, all balls. That's what I'm about. And Pence's support of Trump on the campaign trail was so obviously sexist, it was satirized. Maybe some of you saw this. It was on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This takes a couple of minutes. Look, we have got to begin to lean into this with strong, broad-shouldered American leadership. That's what he says about Trump all the time. Broad-shouldered broad American leadership. Broad-shouldered. And, and I'm not making this up. Check it out. To be around Donald Trump is to is to be around a man with broad shoulders. <laughs> that kind of broad-shouldered American strength. <laughs> this is a broad-shouldered leader. 
the kind of broad-shouldered leader he is. Broad-shouldered leadership. Broad-shouldered, energetic. Look, Donald Trump's got broad shoulders. Broad-shouldered, broad, 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 broad-shouldered broad leadership. That's all this broad-shouldered leader. So you're not referencing his masculinity there? Oh, not a bit. Not okay. a bit. <laughs> 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 we see you, guys. <laughs> we see you, guys. All right, back to social Darwinism was used to justify white male supremacy and ruthless capitalism, right? <laughs> Colonialism was on the rise in our, uh, on our planet, and people pointed to social Darwinism as a way to justify it. Um, noblesse oblige, you know, they need to civilize backwards people, on and on and on and on. But the fact is that a lot of people rely <coughs> on a misappropriation of Darwin's evolution uh, theory in order to argue that this applies to humans as well. And it's kind of like the prosperity gospel thing where if you are already at the top, then that means you are fit to be taught at the top, right? And if you're at the bottom, then there's something wrong with you, victim blaming at a very, very broad level. Thank you, Herbert Spencer, sociologist from the 1800s, but it was picked up by a lot of other people as well. It was largely discredited by the Holocaust, which had led to the extreme of eugenics, right? Let's get rid of all the people who are spoiling our gene pool and engage in um, mass genocide, right? And there were also anthropologists who said, hey, hey, wait a minute, humans are not um, driven by genes, humans have cultures and cultural norms and cultural traditions are more important as a factor in how we behave than our genes. In fact, it has been argued then and now that the most important thing our genes give us is the flexibility to conform to whatever system we find ourselves born into, right? So, even though it was largely discredited, it lives on in our ethos, and that's true and especially in business. In fact, it's the most prevalent philosophy in business ethics. I was surprised to find this, but I was also shocked that psychologists haven't really looked at social Darwinism. The literature on social Darwinism, other than historical, is found in the business ethics literature. It's not found in psychology, yet we devote a lot of our neurons and genetic material, if you will, to studying prejudice, discrimination of all kinds, but we have really overlooked this, one would hope, discredited <coughs> philosophy, but in fact, not yet gone away from our world. Here's some sample items. The fittest members of our society naturally rise to the top. Policies that promote weaker groups to positions of power threaten the natural order. Welfare, affirmative action, God forbid we talk reparations, right? No, 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 that's bad for society because what nature does is it weeds out the strong. Social reformers who want to make us all equal just don't understand that people are by nature unequal. In the race of the top, nature dictates that those without the superior qualities needed to compete <coughs> will lose. So if you're a loser, you're a loser for a good reason, and you ought to get the heck out of the gene pool while you're at it, right? That's the extreme version of that. So even though notice there's really nothing said about gender, um, it's indirect because women are 
you know, putatively the weaker sex, right? But it's not directly addressed. Social determinism still might be the best defense of patriarchy because it has this combination of biology with superiority, jungle law, or survival of the fittest legitimizes inequalities, and that should include legitimizing gender inequality. By contrast, even though gender essentialism is all about gender, right, hitting over and over again the belief that biologically driven uh, differences is what causes the genders to behave and feel about things differently, right? But it says nothing about patriarchy. There's nothing about power or why that would make men better or worse than women. Nothing about that. And there's some positive items about women's you know, um, nurturing capabilities as well as men's leadership capabilities. So it might be that it's kind of only getting at half of the picture, while SDO measures the other half, which is support for hierarchy, but it says nothing about why. There's no rationale for it. So armed with these ideologies, in December we asked 422 MTurk workers, all American adults, which of the two major party candidates did you prefer? It's a forced choice. They had to choose between Clinton or Trump. It was a 60-40 split on average with more choosing her than him, but a surprising amount choose him, chose him. Um, if you look, break down by gender, men's support was evenly split, and it was actually women who showed a 60-40 split in favor of her. But as you'll see in a minute, participant gender falls by the wayside when we look at these other factors. Who rejected Clinton? Not surprisingly, men are not surprisingly conservatives, more than liberals, religious people, more than non-religious people, as well as those who defended patriarchy or who scored higher on any of the ideologies, SDO, gender essentialism, or social Darwinism. You look just at the bivariate correlations, there's nothing in this first column that doesn't predict rejecting Clinton in favor of Trump, except for socioeconomic status. That's the only thing that doesn't. So that's kind of a soup, right? You don't know what is going to be more important. And before I go on to show you incremental validity um, analyses, I'll point out that social Darwinism in the bottom row, it is a new measure. What's been used in the business, business ethics literature has been a three-item scale that has a very poor alpha, so we had to augment it. Or it has operationalized social Darwinism more like what looks like Machiavellianism, and not so much. Yeah, you know. Or, and I know Machiavellianism. I'm just yeah, nodding. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it'll be like I think it's perfect. Like greed or greed is good. That's the way I would encapsulate it. Competition is more important than um, any other value, right? That kind of thing. So just. Um, be merciless in your business practices kind of thing, but there's no talk about that some people are superior to the other, right, nothing like that. So we really are kind of going uh, into un uh, groundbreaking territory here. So we want to make sure everything's kosher. <laughs> we see conservatives outscoring liberals. We see <coughs> religious people outscoring non-religious people, men outscoring women on social Darwinism that I'm talking about, and wealthy people <coughs> more so than poor people. And the blue box shows you that all the ideologies nicely fit together. So there's some nice construct validity in this slide. But there's also this soup in the red column. So we use logistic regression because it's a forced choice outcome. 
in order to examine the incremental validity of each of those predictors on that correlational side. After adjusting for demographics, only political identity and defending patriarchy significantly predicted rejecting Clinton in favor of Trump. Everything else sort of falls by the wayside, so I put in red and bold the only two that are, you know, statistically significant. Okay? So, this confirms what we already kind of knew, people who defend patriarchy resist female leaders, but it doesn't address the burning question, why? To find out, we separately regress defending patriarchy on SDL, gender essentialism, and social Darwinism, again adjusting for demographic variables. The results showed that social Darwinism contributed about twice as much variance to defending patriarchy, 16%, compared with SDO coming in at 8%, or gender essentialism at 7%. Remember, these are like partial correlations because we have all these demographics that are going in the soup. So what happens if we just look at the raw data? You just look at the bivariate correlations. The one between defending patriarchy and social Darwinism is statistically larger, 0.64 is larger than 0.50 SDO defending patriarchy or gender essentialism and defending patriarchy. So we just used uh, the typical way that you test for statistical differences and that's what we found. To summarize social Darwinism best predicted defending patriarchy, which uniquely predicted favoring Trump over Clinton along with political identity, so that's just one study and we have to be wary. So we did a replication study, direct replication study on a Rutgers undergraduate sample with approximately the same N387 instead of 402 and we got exactly the same result. So I feel confident sharing these with you, but we also thought maybe this kind of uh, result is confined to the political domain. After all, political scientists have long argued that the most important right-left distinction is that liberals value equality, while conservatives insist it's neither possible nor desirable. So we did, in fact, find conservatives scoring higher on social Darwinism than liberals. Replicating beyond politics seems like a wise idea. And the other thing is, is that there's been a lot of work on gender essentialism. So we thought, let's come up with a scenario that would give at least more than an equal playing field to gender essentialism being a factor in informing defending patriarchy. So this is how we did it. In study two, we switched to female targets who were successful business leaders identically described except for their interest in becoming a mother. Reproductive biology, right? <coughs> gender essentialism might actually come through in this case. So we went back to Amchurk and we got 400 American adults who all read the following. Susan and her husband are both high-powered business leaders. Their full-time careers require most of their time, but they're also gratifying intellectually and personally, having brought them financial stability and recognition. The last sentence contained the manipulation. Participants either read, Susan's never wanted to be a mother, so the couple has decided to be child-free by choice. Susan would like her husband to have a vasectomy, and he has agreed. So that's the female vanguard condition. Or they read, Susan has always wanted to be a mother, so the couple has decided to start a family. 
Susan has asked her husband to reverse his vasectomy, and he has agreed. So that's the traditional female target condition. So for target support, we averaged together because they were so highly related. How much do you support Susan's lifestyle? How much do you trust her decision making? And how morally justified do you think her lifestyle is? So in order for there to be like hopefully less reactants, we also came up with some smokescreen fillers. The cover story was we're interested in how people judge other people's lifestyle. So we also, in addition to the Susan uh, target, we gave them a couple of men who were either uh, male vanguards, one of them wanted to be a stay-at-home husband, and the other one wanted to be some kind of go-getter lawyer, right? We did the same kind of things with a couple of guys. So I'm not going to talk about the guys. That's not what we're interested in. We're interested in backlash against female vanguards. So, also new to this study, participants completed the ideology measures as always in random order, but this time we manipulated whether they did that before or after they read about and evaluated the target. It's a procedural variable that did not affect results, but it was a good idea to check on that. Okay, we ruled that procedural variable out, and so the focal analysis, we're going to regress target support on her lifestyle, wants to be a mom, never wants to be a mom, defending patriarchy, gender system justification belief scores, participant gender, and all their interactions. And what we found was on average, people supported the traditional target more than the vanguard, so that's the backlash effect. But it's qualified, right, the mean effect of lifestyle by the predicted target lifestyle by defending patriarchy interaction. So simple slopes analysis showed that people who defended patriarchy showed low support for Susan only in the Vanguard condition when she was child-free by choice, not in the traditional condition where their GSJ scores didn't have anything to do with whether they supported her or not. So once again, people who defended patriarchy were also likely to reject a female Vanguard. Why is patriarchy defended? Once again, after adjusting for demographics, social Darwinism contributed more unique variants, this time 13%, compared with SDO and gender essentialism. And once again, bivariate correlations confirmed this result, it's virtually identical to the slide that I showed you earlier. So to summarize, defending patriarchy justifies backlash against accomplished women. That's what we found out in 2012. But then it begs the question, why is patriarchy defended? We have three stutters now supporting social Darwinism as the most predictive ideology, whether or not the context was political. It's early stages. I'm sure we're going to find some context in which social Darwinism will be overruled by something else. We just haven't found it yet. And I'm calling attention to social Darwinism because it has apparently been incredibly overlooked by at least social psychology. I cannot find it in psych info. Social Darwinism may have broad explanatory power to explain Trumpism. It boils down to a belief that certain people are meant to dominate and others are destined to be dominated. Often it is the wealthy job creators and the nomenclature of conservatives who are meant to dominate, but it extends to the idea that the U.S. should dominate the rest of the world, that white people should dominate people of color, that men should dominate women, that Christians should dominate Muslims, 
that humans should dominate the earth, that Donald Trump should dominate any opponent. And it doesn't matter whether he lies to do it, right? It doesn't matter. The means justify the ends. As long as he wins, they win, whatever it takes. For many people, that worldview is antithetical to democracy, underscored by the Clinton campaign slogan, Stronger Together. And while she lost the election, we cannot forget her historic achievement. She won the popular vote. She was the first woman to run as a major party presidential candidate, and she won the popular vote by more than anybody, at least in the last 40 or 50 years, right? At least so far, he hasn't managed to convince everybody in the country that that was an illegitimate result. Nonetheless, here's where she failed. She failed to arouse enthusiasm needed to put her in the Oval. I don't know if you know this, there were no more Republicans who came out in 2016 than came out for Mitt Romney. They might have been different Republicans, but they were not larger. There were fewer Democrats. And when Democrats say, oh, you're going to lose, you're going to lose the election. And I don't know about you, but talking to people that I know who just couldn't stand them, but also, in many cases, they actually voted for her, but they kind of held their nose when they did so. They did not see her as likable or trustworthy, right? This is the double bind that women are in, damned if they act like men and damned if they don't. There's always something waiting for you. Really a tough tightrope. That's the way I've described it in the past. How can women walk that tightrope without falling off on either side? Questions or comments so far? Yeah? Um, so, and maybe you're getting to this, I don't know. Uh, but um, I, 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 I'm interested in you addressing the race piece in this. Um, and I'm asking because, uh, particularly when we're talking about Trump, I think that it wasn't just that he was a man able to do this. He was a white man able to do this. I right. think, right. I think um, so it's, and I think one of the things that wasn't highlighted, or, you know, many have shared that it was really white women who put Trump in this White House. Yeah. Right. So there there are a lot of things yeah. that are going here beyond right. gender into race or the right. intersectionality of the two. Right. I mean, one would, I mean, I have heard people talk, even in talking about, like, gun control. What would happen if more people of color took up arms that might actually change the gun control issue more than someone coming in and killing a, a bunch of five and six year olds, right? Uh, because then you begin to think about who has power right. and what that means. So I think, and I and I share that because I think this is a lot about who is supposed to have power, right. and that runs along um, gender lines just as much as it runs along race lines. Race lines. Um, and, and also then what does it, where is the space, because I'm trying to find myself in the conversation, like where is the space then that black women have to walk, yeah, right? right. Um, because I think that that's a little different. And when we yeah. talk about women, we kind of talk about us all in this like overarching or whatever, but we're not, we don't all share the same experience. And we can't so. even talk about white women in one breath or black women in one <clears throat> breath either, right? But we do for the sake of being able to have a conversation. Otherwise, like Hannah was talking this morning at breakfast, it, it becomes so sliced and diced and complicated that you, there's no way to study intersectionality. And, and one thing that I like about that conversation is I've been having it with more and more people, and it's always bringing us back around to, wait a minute, if we can't study intersectionality, we can't cross just race and gender, 
then why do we feel like we can lump black women, black men, white women, white men together, right? If we're having all this difficulty when we're doing this crossover stuff, it's a sign that we've been oversimplifying in the past. And we're gonna have a come to Jesus moment on this is what I think is gonna happen as, as, as long as we continue to try to push for intersectional research. So I'm gonna talk about that a little bit today. But to your point, I would love to see more op-ed pieces, more social scientists writing in the Times we can review about how it was that sexism played a role, but racism played a bigger one. Because after all, we got Trump after eight years of, of Obama, right? And they're just, that was enough to make the people who've been hiding in the sewers come out with the pitchforks and say, okay, we've had enough of this now. Now we want somebody who will be our voice. The demonization of Obama, a man with you know more dignity and grace in his little finger than the current Oval Office, right, has in his whole body. I mean, there's just like no comparison between them. But the vilification of him by the nutwing media on the right, ridiculous. And that's what people that's what people believe. So that's Tony. Get in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm so comfortable here. So just to follow up on the question, what is your response to sort of, does race matter with this backlash and stuff? And I think, you know, we're going to sort of, I think- Depends on methodology. You said what? The parsimonious answer is, it doesn't, it doesn't, depending on the methodology that you use. So do you want me just to go through, it's about 10 minutes of slides and we can chat about it after. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. definitely. <laughs> All right. So we started back in 2013 including black women in backlash research using that standard hiring paradigm, videotape job interviews for managerial jobs. What should we expect? Could be one or the other or something in between. On one hand, black women are stereotyped as more androgynous than white women, more masculine, less feminine. That might allow them to more easily defeat women's first hurdle. Maybe they don't have a lack of fit between who they are as and leadership roles. That would be great. In that case, they might still risk backlash, but at least they wouldn't have the first hurdle. But alternatively, there's this notion of double jeopardy, meaning that maybe black women have to combat both racial and gender stereotypes. And if that's the case, it might be tougher for them to defeat the first hurdle. They will not be a victim of backlash, but they will be a victim of more traditional, old-fashioned sexism, if you will. Unfortunately, investigating black women has proved to be difficult, largely due to pro-black bias. I know I'm not the only researcher who's bumped up against this, but the number one thing that white sphere is being thought of as bigoted. Right? Phil Goff calls it stereotype threat for whites, fear of being bigoted. And so they tend to bend over backwards, overcompensate like mad, and the next thing you know, you get pro-black bias, meaning compared with white women or white men, they're rated as more competent, more likable, and hireable. One I use between subject designs, that is when people are just seeing one target. Doesn't matter if she's behaving agentically or communally, doesn't even budge her competence if she is communal. People don't go, oh, she's actually 
really nice, but I don't think she quite has what it takes. No, uh-uh. And they see her skin color and they circle the farthest number on the scale in their minds. And that's what they do on the computer. So my suggestion for Onion headline is Blacks win all hypothetical jobs. So as a first resort, we turn to brief IATs after watching either an agentic or communal target, either a black woman, a white woman, or a white man, compete for a managerial job. Participants categorize their photos with good words in one block and bad words in a separate block, and then as usual, we randomize block order. And we make what's called attitude D scores. It's a lot like Cohen's D, so hence the D. The difference between performing, the speed of performing the task when you're associating the target's pictures with good words and associating the target's pictures with bad words, you take that difference and you divide it by each participant's standard deviation. And what that does is it adjusts for the fact that some people are just faster than others when they do computerized tasks, right? And it's so much like Cohen's D, uh, the only difference being Cohen's D, the denominator is the pool standard deviation of the entire sample, but in the D statistic, it's the pool standard deviation of each individual's, you know, and they're doing like four or 500 trials, right? That's the difference between them. So it's like an individual D score. Um, a high score reflects liking the target. You can score it uh, the opposite way, but I scored it that way. Okay, so then we can average over these D-scores in each condition, and what we see is that there's more liking for um, the white guy when he's agentic than when he's communal. And people aren't actually really liking him. That D is less than 0.05. It's not statistically different than zero. It's more like indifference. They don't neither like or dislike him. But they actively dislike him when he behaves communally while he's being interviewed for a managerial job, okay? He's acting out of role. And then for the women, it's vice versa. They like her more when she's communal than when she's agentic, and prejudice and liking are actually statistically different from zero in that case. Well, now we go to the interesting side, which is black women. We always have more than one black woman collapsed across them, and what do we find? This like, regardless of it didn't matter how they behaved, implicitly don't like her. So the problem is that automatic racial bias infects the IAT, right? So we cannot use the IAT in order to try to answer the question, does race matter for backlash against female leaders? So we next turn to a within subjects design, which I had used once before, Back with my doctoral thesis in study three, participants interviewed both a man and a woman for an agentic task. It was to be their partner in a Jeopardy game, and it was you know, described as high pressure situation, so you have to be both smart and uh, good at working under pressure. And because the man and the woman are being interviewed back to back, they couldn't say the same things. No one would believe that, right? So we actually had to come up with different scripts and the answer to the question, how do you perform under pressure, uh, the woman used the one we always use, which is basically to say, oh, I thrive. I tend to thrive in pressure situations. In fact, when I was an editor on the college newspaper, then she goes on to talk about how she thrived in a pressure situation, 
where the guy started out by saying, I eat pressure for breakfast. <laughs> so he convinced me that if he wasn't saying something that strong, that it wouldn't be come off the way equal anyway. We found backlash, but we also, you know, have this problem with internal validity, right? It's compromised. Even though I like to think of the external validity as being improved, because generally we don't hire just one person out of the dark. We have a choice to make. So now what we're going to do in order to retain identical scripts is we're going to switch to an addition paradigm. It's a hiring paradigm, but in the context that these people are competing in order to act as computer lab managers in an upcoming project, right? So you're going to watch two candidates today, one of whom will be hired to play the role of computer lab manager in our next project. It's a paid position. If we don't have the best person in this position, the integrity of our study will be foobar, right? So we really need you to pay attention and do your very best to help us select the most believable candidate, in essence, the best actor for the part. And they were fully aware that everyone was using the same script. They were not aware of the fact that we trained them to act alike, right? So now internal validity is no longer compromised. For the sake of generality, we also use multiple actors. Because white male leaders are the standard to which female leaders are compared, in one condition, we're going to pair white men with white women. In the other, we're going to pair white men with black women. And I'm going to show you the result as effect sizes. The Z after the D just means it's Cohen's effect size for within subject data. And it translates identically in terms of magnet, magnitude, 0 0.2, 0 0.5, 0 0.8, uh, as with between subjects data. And I scored it in a way that positive scores reflect pro-white male bias. So what do we find? When uh, the white men and the white women are paired together, remember everybody's agentic, no differences in competence, but the usual, they like the agentic man more than the agentic woman, white woman, and therefore they're more likely to hire him. You go over to the interesting condition, yes, the black woman is still liked more than the white woman, but this was the part that was so fascinating to me. The competence takes a hit for the black woman. The white guy is seen as smarter, more intelligent, more qualified, more capable of being a leader, and that's the reason why he's hired. So in mediation analyses, I don't know if you know that Andrew Pace now has memory, M-E-M-O-R-E, -M -E, but it is a macro that allows you to test mediation with within subject variables. Two seconds, like that's great. So over here, we see that the target effect on hiring, or the target gender effect on hiring, is mediated by liking, as usual. And over here, it's mediated by competence, OK? Does that make sense? All right. Agency displays, therefore, were less convincing for black women, rendering them more likable, but also less competent and thus less hireable. That's a result that's consistent with double jeopardy, suggesting that black women may have a higher first hurdle to jump than white women. Therefore, finding out what it takes for black women to conquer that first hurdle is a pressing concern. Future research, if anybody's interested in following up on this. We know from Robert Livingston did some qualitative interviews with actual black leaders, and they did report suffering from backlash, but those are women who have achieved a leadership position. 
So they've gotten past the first hurdle, only to face the second one. So I expected to find no racial differences between black and white women, provided they both could get up, over, up and over that first hurdle. Because that didn't happen, then the results I have to report to you are depress more depressing, actually. So I don't know what it will take to get black women to be seen as equally competent. Yes, do you have an idea? I do, I have yeah. an idea about the first hurdle. And I think so what has been beneficial for me is that uh, you know research sh shows that women in general are over-mentored and under-sponsored. Are right? what? Over-mentored and, and under-sponsored. Oh. So I think what's happened, and I know in, in, in my case, is that going over that first hurdle has meant the connection with a white male sponsor. Aha. Um, and that has gotten me in the door every single time um, to get me to the next level. Yeah, you're making me think of Sheryl Sandberg and her escort was Larry Summers, mm -hmm. right? Because it has to be a person who has that power, where mentorship is more about the connection you have with people. Yeah. And it has to be a person who has that power. In, I'm thinking of two cases in particular, um, the, the white males who sponsored me were people that I spoke with for 20 minutes. I didn't know them, they didn't really know me, yeah. we still don't really know each other well. Right. But when it's time for, when I need something or when they want me to do something, they're like, you know what, I want you to do this thing. Yeah. I do it, and now it was very clear I'm gonna put you in front of these people. If you can't cut it, yeah. right, then you just can't cut it. Right. But oftentimes, as we know for women, like we're over, like we can cut it. We yeah. just need the opportunity to get right. in front of the people. Right, right, I love that, that's great. So we could maybe, for example, have a recommendation letter coming from either a big muckety-muck who's a white guy or a muckety-muck who's a black guy and see, for example, if that matters in terms of Getting her over the curse. I would say would for you, black women, it will probably need to be the top of the top person. Uh, um, in both instances, that's so depressing. But I think for white women, it could just be a man, right? It could just be a white man who can come in and say, right, who, who may have like a yeah. job as a whatever, yeah. right? But for black women, it needs to be like you are the CEO or the president of a college that is telling you that this woman is credible. Dynamite, right? Yeah. Gonna say, do you, do you know Ron Burke, the gender social capital? That one might be good, but but it, it, it doesn't make a race. It, it just looks at it probably predominantly white female sample, but it looks at career advancement. But basically argues that women need sponsorship. It, he doesn't use sponsorship as that word, but he basically right. he, he does this up on structural hole brokers. Basically argues that you know men get ahead by connecting disconnected others, and he finds that women actually can't quite do that. They need to be. They need to be kind of um, hinged to a higher status person who can help them move forward. But that would be an interesting thing yeah. to think about whether that's intensified yeah. with the racial dimension. For, for what it's worth, can I just share with you that I was so, I've been in recent years trying to do stuff on low status men, whether there's backlash toward low status men when they attempt to self advocate for a higher pay. Right. And we ran, I've run studies both with like Hispanic men versus whites or, um, uh, like uh, Middle Eastern looking men versus whites and the negative evaluations of the minority guy were so bad I mean I couldn't get any negotiation effect because the main effect of just being the minority man was so 
profoundly negative. We just got no. Wow. They just like fell through the floor. Wow. Yeah. So it's but it's interesting. It's kind of it's a little like your results. And the like same with Latino as the, for the Middle Eastern man. That's what. Middle Eastern men evaluated in the U.S. We 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 subsequently I can send you the paper. We've subsequently shown this effect in a in a less where there's less prejudice but still status differences. But the um. But it, but it just it's I mean it just shows how like how hard it is to study. Yeah, these things. That it's the really reason, hard the base to study. Effect yeah, is so strong. That yeah, we even. Yeah, um, we had nothing to say other than oh, you know, there's <laughs> like prejudice. You know, prejudice. look at this. There's prejudice, and then so. We oh my God! Yeah, send floor. me that paper. I I could I could give you a long list of other citations where people have been struggling with this, and I heard just recently because I was interviewing a gal from her lab, Mazarin Banaji, sent me a potential recruit and we were just chatting about it and she said Mazarin announced to her lab that she was going to stop looking at intersectionality because she couldn't make any sense out of it. And that would be a shame if we all just walked away from it. We need to double down and do more is my sense of it. But it's flummoxed even some of our brighter minds, let's put it that way. Twenty. Yeah, because uh, the black men that we first of all videotaped were, they were not um, as good at projecting self-promotion. They were great at self-effacement in the communal condition, but they were just not good at self-promotion. So we scrapped them and just concentrated on black women. Meanwhile, we searched for better black guys, and we now have better black guys, so we're running that fully cross-designed this semester, and I just, I don't have the data yet, because I want at least a thousand participants for what that. Would you hypothesize, and we, go ahead. What would you hypothesize? Where would you, like if you go to the, the, the graphics well, that you show? This would be interesting, because if a black woman and a black man are seen as equally competent, equally likable, and equally hireable, especially when they're agentic, right? It that It would tell you something about how the white male leadership prototype is killing black women, right? But if there's still um, a preference for masculinity over femininity in that condition, then it should at least be smaller than in the white condition, right? It should be smaller, because black women are supposedly androgynous. So it shouldn't come as a shock, as big of a shock for people if they see them behaving in a sort of Way they might not like it though, but it shouldn't come as a shock. Androgynous or hypersexualized. Yeah. So there's there, there's there's some other psychological processes going on with that. So yes. sapphire kind of stereotype. Yes. Um, anyway. Wow. Can we talk some more? Sure. Okay. You have a question? Yeah, I was just trying to understand it in the uh, sample of participants that you have in your study. What's the makeup of the Rutgers undergrad, about 19 years old, about 54% white, maybe 6% African American, about 40% Asian, if you include South Asian with East Asian, and then a tiny little drip drop of Hispanic. So there's never a, go yeah. ahead. Well, I just imagine some of those results vary, that there's variation. By minority right? status. Right, like when you talk about the sort of, um, you know, white people comp overcompensating with a pro-black bias in the 
yeah. much in the interviews. Right. It's like there's right. all there's variation of right. all based on the position. Right. So we actually did go on Amtrak and if you ask them, they will come. That is, if you announce your study is for African Americans, you can get data while you sleep just as fast overnight for African Americans on Amtrak that you, as you can if you just run a study, which is almost always predominantly white people. That, but if you ask them to come, they will come and they will email you a thank you for doing it. So when I did that, what I found was just tremendous pro-black bias, like just over-the-top pro-black bias. And for either white, I mean, it's a different motivational mechanism, right? They're not afraid of being thought of as racist. They want blacks to be enfranchised. So they're basically going to pick their own for different reasons, right? So it didn't help me. But I had that same thought. So, you know, great minds think alike. And it just didn't work out. Yes, Rachel. Yeah, I was just curious how you reconcile your findings with um, like Robert's other work showing that black women don't face backlash. Yeah, so he's got some contradictory work because if they goof up and make a mistake, then, they, then they're not seen as competent. It doesn't take as much for a black woman to be, um, to have a decrease in her competence. If she's already a leader, and she, uh, I see you kind of eyes glazed There's over. two different papers, so one is the one yeah. where she makes a mistake and then she is penalized Yeah, and the other and one is where she's one. supposedly dominant. Yeah. She's not that dominant. She's a little bit angry. She says, I'm mad, but I will do everything I can to help you get up and over for your next performance review, right? If you look at the details and yeah, look at the outcome. <laughs> like, what is the difference? Look at the yeah. outcome measure. He collapsed liking with competence. So um, I don't really know what happened to her competence. Got it. Right. Yeah. I suspect people liked her, but it's possible they didn't see her as, as competent, as, but he buried that together. Gotcha. I don't know. I don't know from that. That's how he does not tell me anything. And I'm going to tell him that in about 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's this tension between likability and respect. Yeah. So there is a, there's a right. researcher coming out of Yale who talks about the difference between um, what black and white people need in the workplace. Yeah. And so um, what he finds is black that people want respect. Black people want respect and white people want harmony. And so what happens, and, and it actually impacts the way um, there's you know, a diversity in, in management, in subordinates, and things of that yep. nature. But I wonder if there's this kind of tension between that likability and respect, the need for likability. Yes. For like persuasion, right? It's a principle of persuasion. Right. You need to have likability. Right. But then it comes against this cultural tension of that need for respect. Right, right. One of the papers that inspired me to do this work was an I.O. paper that said, in the workplace, men are respected and women are adored. That was in the title. And as, at that time, we didn't even have benevolent sexism, yeah. a way to measure any of that. But that's essentially what they were getting at was that paternalistic patronizing of women, but how much that robbed them of respect. So that ba that balance has been thought about by people smarter than me for a really long time. That, absolutely, that's what women's double bind is. You get to choose. Do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? And you lose either way, no matter what you choose, right? 
But there's gotta be a way to walk the tightrope. So Rachel is doing some work on self-affirmation, right? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I wouldn't use that word exactly. No, Tiara is doing the work on self-affirmation, <laughs> finding that men are more willing to work with a woman if they undergo a self-affirmation value endorsement beforehand, right? So that's one possible way. Another way might be through self-disclosure, which is what Rachel is looking at. If you have two people who interact and there's enough meaningful contact between them that calms people down enough, maybe that is a solution. Some, there was a woman in Poland who told me, do you know what we did to get rid of backlash uh, against Polish women leaders? Is we had people right about a time when they did something that caused people's hackles to go up. Like, what if, when have you broken some kind of norm or rule? And when they, then they had empathy for, apparently that she didn't actually measure the mechanism, but it seemed like people had empathy then for a woman who was behaving in a assertive manner in order to get a job, right? So that's something that needs to be tried. Yes, can I ask more questions? Uh, yes, I see that it's time. I just had one question since we're talking about self-affirmation and I think you introduced this idea of Dar Darwinism, Darwinianism. Darwinism. Um, you got it. Um, so, <laughs> um, so basically, so these are two ideas. I'm a journalist, so not an academic, but this is very interesting for me. Um, and I was wondering if, like, self-affirmation in a way, is, you know, propagates. Like, is there anyone who's looked into like self-affirmation propagating the culture of Darwinism? Uh, you know, like the, the idea of like power, which sort of looks at you know survival of the fittest. So. So for example, people from different ethnicities, black, brown, um, gender, you know, uh, these issues uh, essentially come and uh, those of the, who represent these communities uh, sort of uh, want to be in, in the circle of power, right? Yeah. And when they want to be in the circle of power, they look, uh, you know, for example, if, you're, if we're going to talk about white male, they look for those who affirm to them and then allow them to come and be part of that power circle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does, so what do we do about that? Yeah, I mean, like, I was wondering if there was any work on that, or have you looked at No, Doc, because what I'm finding today is there's a rich, rich literature throughout the I.O. and economics. I mean, stuff you told me about today, I hadn't heard of before. It seems like everything I know, you know of, but not so much vice versa. <laughs> More than worth it for me to make this trip, right? Well, we're so honored. <laughs> this has been really joyous. Truly really joyous. We're going to try to keep that line open. Um, so I hope you'll join us next week. Uh, we've got uh, Francis Blau, who's the Francis per uh, Perkins Professor of Industrial and Labor Relations and Professor of Economics. Um, at Cornell um, University. She's going to talk about the gender wage gap, extent, trends, and explanations. And she is truly, perhaps, she and Claudia Golden are the leading economists who analyze the uh, gender wage gap. So this is a, like this one, it's another talk to attend. I will so. come. <laughs>